The Anchored City Podcast is recorded in Anchorage, Alaska, on the traditional lands of the Denina Athabascan people. I have heard the oldest stories that the wisest man never told. And I cast aside my worries And just went digging for gold And I will scale the highest mountains Looking for the bluest blue Nigerian novelist and essayist Chinua Achebe once said, There is that great proverb that until the lions have their own historians, the history of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. That's a poetic way of saying that history is written by the victors, a sentiment that is often attributed to Winston Churchill, but itself has longer historical roots. Another quote on history you might know is that those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. That thought was penned by essayist, poet, and novelist George Santiana. We know these aphorisms because they are in large part true. History, in nearly every case, is recorded by the winners. And because we often don't know both sides, we fail to remember history well. In a TED Talk that's been viewed 24 and a half million times, novelist Chimamanda Adichie warns listeners of the danger of a single story. A single story is knowing only one narrative about a person, a group of people, or a place that fails to give a full understanding. It's a bit like a stereotype. Adichie states, The consequence of a single story is this. It robs people of dignity. It makes our recognition of our equal humanity difficult. It emphasizes how we are different rather than how we are similar. If history is a collection of stories, then there's a risk of only hearing one side of that story as well and in doing so, diminishing our collective humanity. Oceans, and there are deserts that I have yet to cross. And I have dreamed of faraway places where imagination just gets lost. And I would search the wide world over When we tell the history of Anchorage in Alaska, what story are we telling? The preamble to the state constitution reads, We the people of Alaska, grateful to God and to those who founded our nation and pioneered this great land, in order to secure and transmit to succeeding generations our heritage of political, civil, and religious liberty within the United States, do ordain and establish this constitution for the state of Alaska. To my ears, this is a single story. The story of pioneers who came to Alaska from somewhere else. The stories of those here since the dawn of time are not even mentioned. Preston Jones, in his history of Anchorage, writes, As for Anchorage, the only case of willful segregation uncovered for this study came in 1948 in the form of a covenant in the Airport Heights neighborhood prohibiting the sale of property to any non-white person. We know from the previous episode that saying this is the only case of willful segregation 
is a single-story view of Anchorage's history of housing segregation. Most of us learned our history in a single-story way, from the perspective of the victors, those pioneers, founders, and others that came to Anchorage, Alaska, and the United States from someplace else. On this episode, we will continue considering the legacy of colonialism, and we will hear some of the pieces of our history that we often miss. I wanted to understand a little bit better just what colonialism is. So I called up somebody who might know. And Sarita Chamaqat, I'm Shana Larson. I'm Sukhbi on my mom's side from the village of Palawik, also known as Port Graham. And I'm Atna on my dad's side from the village of Nidiniana, also known as Chickaloon Village. I serve on my traditional tribal council. I've uh, been serving for the past 13 years, and I also serve as a tribal court judge for our tribe. I am currently the deputy director at Native Movement, and um, I use she, her pronouns, and I am calling in today from one jurisdiction over from my traditional jurisdiction out in Palmer, and so I'm calling from Anchorage, which is Denina lands. I think there are several different um, definitions of colonization and um, let's see I think one definition would be the policy or practice of acquiring political control over another country or land occupying it with settlers and exploiting it economically another um, definition would be the process of devaluing and dehumanizing native people through both formal and informal methods in order to justify exploiting them and their homelands. And then we also talk about a third kind of colonialism, which is called settler colonialism. And uh, the definition for that is settlers are not immigrants. Immigrants are beholden to the indigenous laws and epistemologies of the land they migrate to. Settlers become the law, supplanting indigenous laws and epistemologies. And that's the Tuck and Yang 2013 definition. Shauna reminded me that colonization is a huge topic, one that people even get their PhD in. So I wanted to get at least one more definition of colonization. I asked Aaron Leggett, who was with us on a previous episode, what colonization is. Anybody that knows anything about American history uh, and the treatment of indigenous people has some sense of that. And this is a model that was not just applied to the United States, but is sort of uh, an extension of the the British model of, of colonization. So anywhere <coughs> the... Uh, the you know that that has a connection back to to britain and they had been they had uh several uh centuries of a practice of doing this so what does colonization look like well colonization looks at 
the, the same practices that were being used towards Gaelic speaking people or Welsh speaking people um, were then applied to indigenous languages um, in the Americas, in the Caribbean, uh, into India, parts of uh, Africa. And so what it is, is it was just a full sale replacement of one Primarily, the big one being, uh, you know, the elimination of language, um, English only is essentially, and that we still have that um, doctrine in place as an official policy. Uh, as a country, uh, we are fiercely monolingual uh, as an official sort of recognition. Uh, there are some departments that are moving towards, you know, uh, like in California, for example, the realities are that Spanish will probably be spoken by more people than English. But um, so it was through, it was kind of a two-pronged system in Alaska. It was English only through the education system, but for lack of, you know, uh, and this, this is just a fact, sort of this unholy alliance between there's supposed to be a separation between church and state. And that didn't occur. And Alaska, you know, was looked at as, uh, I mean, the head of Alaska education was a man by the name of Sheldon Jackson, who was a Presbyterian minister. And um, there are a lot of good things that came from, you know, religion, but Generally speaking, you know, the state was carved up among different uh, denominations. And so you'd have one village that would be, you know, Episcopalian, one that's Methodist, one that's Baptist. They begrudgingly, they tried to um, uh, um, tried to make inroads into the Russian Orthodox speaking communities because they looked at that as sort of a foreign church or an Eastern church. Somehow Catholicism was okay as long as they spoke English, I guess, but Orthodoxy, Russian Orthodoxy was, was kind of barely recognized as, uh, as a uh, religion in their minds. at at that time, I know people, I know native people whose, parents or grandparents were punished in school, not for speaking their native language, but for speaking Russian. So, uh, and it should be pointed out that during uh, the 19th century, there were a lot of um, Creole or mixed blood people who had a a Russian father and a native mother, and especially the, the, the boys or the men, some of whom were sent off to be educated and had the equivalence of, of advanced college degrees. And when the Americans came in, because they didn't speak English, they were, I mean, just largely uh, ignored or, you know, uh, their status disappeared overnight. Uh, so you have these uh, army officers that are coming in that are in some, in many cases are less educated than the the leaders of these communities, but they're saying, we're in charge, we know what's best, you have to listen to us, and oh yeah, by the way, you have no rights to vote, even though you might be able to read in three different languages, just not English. 
So um, things kind of went backwards in a way. Um, and they largely made a lot of the same mistakes that the Russians had um, had discovered and they, they kind of ignored them. Um, and we still face, you know, that, that legacy. But, you know, the most damaging part was that the forcible removal of children from their communities and sent to boarding schools, uh, often hundreds or thousands of miles away. Uh, I, we're lucky in my community in that uh, we had a boarding school that operated from 1925 to 1945 that my grandmother and all her brothers and sisters went to. Um, but they went to the school, but they were one of the few that actually got to go home every night. They would walk from Birchwood to Aklutna to go to school and then come back, uh, catch the train back or, or walk. And so I asked my grandmother, you know, what did she think of the, the vocational school? And she had positive things to say. She had to drop out in the fourth grade because her father died um, and uh, had to raise her brothers and sisters. But, but she, she looked fondly on her education, what she got. Um, there was also, you know, some efforts to try to teach Native people a vocation, um, which had limited success, but had some success. Uh, so, um, it was, so to, to answer your question of, of colonization, it was essentially, it's a complete replacement of systems. And, and the way I, I describe that is if tomorrow you were told that the, your, the US Constitution isn't worth the papers written on, the founding fathers don't mean anything, the United States, I mean, flag is, is a treasonous flag, uh, why are you speaking that, you know, bastard language of English? It's not even its own developed. It, it's kind of this amalgamation of Latin-based languages and Germanic languages. Um, I mean, a wholesale replacement of that coupled with taking your children and, and forcing them to, to learn, you know, uh, Sharia law. I mean, would, would be a good example. And so what is that going to do? It's going to lead to a lot of dysfunction and uh, the removal of um, your identity. You know, it's sort of uh, the saying from the, uh, you know, that, that the educational policy of the time was, you know, kill the Indian, save the man. I don't know how that works, but here we are. And so it was, you know, largely uh, pretty disastrous. Um, now, there are some really remarkable stories out there, and there are some really caring individuals, and there's, there's certainly people that, that uh, cared for the communities and tried to make them better and, and, and tried to embrace um, parts of, of indigenous culture. And generally, where those happened you today find more thriving communities. So it's, but none of them were completely divorced uh, from it. Uh, and it was just, it's kind of like a matter of time. And, you know, in some ways, the Denina uh, were fortunate, I guess, 
in that we had two centuries of it before it really took off. Uh, whereas I think about like where my wife is from, she's from Eagle, Alaska, which is where the Yukon River meets the Canadian border. And they went from almost no contact with outsiders um, before 1895 to almost overnight having 20,000 people in their in the Yukon and at Dawson and uh, through the upper Yukon. And within 10 or 20 years, it, you know, it just, I don't want to, it didn't disappear, but it, it, I mean, it was full sail uh, colonization that they're still, you know, dealing with today. They were never a large group of, of Athabascans, maybe, oh, maybe seven, 800 of them living on, on that upper Yukon. Um, but uh, they had a, a border put right down the middle of them. And today there's like three speakers of the language left. Um, so we all got it in some way. It's just how we got it and when we got it and how we you know, had to adapt to it. But what I have learned and the thing that it took me a while to understand was that despite everything that's happened, somehow we have maintained our core identity. That's not to say there isn't a lot of problems and dysfunction and, and you know, every imaginable ill, but somehow we were able to stay together enough to form this kind of cohesive identity to, to take care of each other, so to speak. And that's the reason I'm, you know, the president of the tribe and, and, um, and I do what I do, but how they did that is, is beyond me. And, and no other Alaska native group um, has had to face it to the gr degree that we have, especially at Aklutna because the fact remains that we've never left our homeland. I've never left where my ancestors have lived, but there's major shopping malls, hotels, office buildings, and, and we just try to hold on to what we can and share it with people now. Aaron's answer got into how colonization took place. I asked Shauna what colonization looked like in Alaska. We give a training called Untangling Colonialism, Decolonizing Advocacy. Our training takes four hours. And so, um, and it's all around the exact topic that you're asking. We're, we're talking about what the history is um, and we're uh, working to create a shared history by walking everybody through the story from the beginning to now. And so, that really helps because then everybody's on the same level and is able to move forward having a constructive conversation. But for example, um, settler colonialism is one that's very interesting to me because of what happened out in the Matanuska Valley where my dad's tribe is from, Chickaloon tribe. In the uh, 1930s, there was the drought and they, um, they called it the Dust Bowl. And uh, at that time, they brought uh, several 
families from the Midwest up to Alaska and plopped them out into the valley and gave them each 40 acre parcels to homestead. And they never recognized the indigenous people that were already there and they created you know, the railroads and the shops and the stores and all those things. And all of them had signs that said no dogs and no natives allowed. And so not only did we not have um, any recognition of being, you know, the stewards of that land, having a relationship with it for thousands of years and just being there, but also being kept out of the system that was brought in. So that's one example and how that plays out today is we see things like Colony Kitchen, Colony High School, Pioneer Peak, uh, we have Colony Days, we have Wasilla Warriors, we have Wasilla Chiefs Middle School. So just looking at uh, how the um, settlers are uh, sort of praised and glorified and immortalized into our traditional lands, um, it, it can and, and does get very frustrating. I asked Shauna to explain the institutional ways that colonization happened via the government and missionaries. Yeah, one of the first things we really talk about is boarding schools. And um, the first boarding school that um, uh, was in place was, of course, um, the Carlisle Indian Industrial School, which was put in place on the lower 48 in 1879. And um, during that time, they used the phrase, kill the Indian and save the man. And I always like to point out that um, it, it was Richard Henry Pratt that was uh, in charge of opening that school, but he uh, was uh, previously in the military. And so there's an image that's commonly shown um, of the Carlisle Indian School, of all the little children lined up with all their hair cut, dressed exactly the same. All girls are in the front sitting, all boys are in the back standing, and it does look very militant. And so um, I think on top of that, a lot of the churches started getting involved in the boarding schools. And so you saw kind of a marriage between this sort of militant situation and then this um, Christian situation that was happening. And for the Carlisle Indian School, the way they separated the kids out was they said, okay, all children who are this tall, um, please, you know, come stand here. And they said, okay, you're all uh, Southern Baptist. And then they said, okay, if you're this tall, come stand over here. Okay, you're Presbyterian. So that's how they divided out all the students and sort of, um, tried to equally divvy up the children amongst the religions. And then um, we saw something different here in Alaska. A lot of our kids uh, were shipped out um, away from the communities, the villages. And, um, 
and obviously um, not allowed to speak their own traditional languages, not allowed to wear their traditional clothing. You know, usually when the children were indoctrinated into the boarding schools, they had all their hair cut off and they were um, given a lice treatment, which is typically kerosene back in those days, and all their old clothes were burned. And so, um, uh, they say that if we took a moment of silence for every child that died in boarding schools between 1879 and, and up to very recently, we would be silent for 13 years. And so um, also just understanding that for the state of Alaska, they did something sort of similar. All of the Christian um, and religious leaders met in New York City and they spread out Alaska as a map and then they divided up the state and each religion took responsibility for different areas. And so that's why you will see one community that is, for example, Methodist and a sister community that might only be four miles away could be Presbyterian. Um, and obviously that wouldn't have been the case with our, our traditional spirituality. We all had a very similar style of um, the beginning of time and our original instructions and what our responsibilities and roles here are on earth and um, and how to to navigate those sacred relationships. And so all of that was really um, lost and and forgotten. And also we were told that it was evil and bad and that we should never have those kinds of practices. Shauna also shared a bit of the legacy of colonization. Yeah, um, one of the things that we talk about in our in our training is about you know we we sort of walk people through and say okay um, kill the Indian save the man um, eighteen seventy nine and boarding schools and then you you know we kind of ask people to take a step back and say wow how did it happen, you know, that all of our, our children were, you know, it was allowed that they were able to be rounded up like that and, and put into these, these homes. Uh, and so then from there, we really start talking about manifest destiny and what that looks like and how that came originally from the kings um, of England and Spain and how they really felt like um, they were able to use God as a way of um, taking ownership. And essentially, it was said that um, if wherever you land, if the people there are not Christians, then they are um, they they simply have the right of occupancy such as birds will occupy the air or fish will occupy the water and that um, we were savages and so from there in particular around the catholic church we saw the doctrine of discovery come out with the papal bulls which is a series of laws that came out from the catholic church which are still on the books today um, and then we really talk about the language uh, that solidified the 
leaders of that time feeling like it was their divine right through God to be able to uh, take these actions. So um, there's also a, a TED talk that we always recommend people to watch, which is by Mark Charles. He's actually running for president on, on an independent platform. Um, he's a Navajo man and uh, or Diné man, and he talks uh, very eloquent, eloquently about the doctrine of discovery and sort of leads everybody through how it impacted um, federal Indian law as well as Alaska Native laws and how um, even some of the most recent rulings cite the doctrine of discovery. And so just thinking about it in that way and understanding um, how that works, I would say um, that some of the ways that we um, that we see this playing out in an everyday manner, but that it appears to be invisible can really only be told through stories. And so one of the stories that I share is um, when I was a small girl, I am an only child and I grew up with mostly my dad and my gram. And um, so my gram spoke our traditional language and she would like to go visit her sisters and drink tea and visit and they would speak in Atna and I would just be there with her. Uh, they'd usually give me a snack and, you know, I'd sit down quietly and I didn't understand what they were saying, but I would listen and um, eat my snack. And I, you know, they spent a lot of time laughing because that's a big part of our culture is laughter as medicine. And um, I would always be very curious. And I remember one specific time asking um, my gram, what they were laughing about. And she looked at her sister and then they both looked at me and they looked at each other and then my gram shook her head and she said, there's not any way to translate what we're talking about into English. And I, I remember thinking in my very colonial six-year-old mind, like how could that be? English is a very expansive language and how aren't there words to just describe what kind of things that you're discussing. And many years later, I was at a tribal council meeting and one of our elders came in and he, um, he was pretty upset and he had a dictionary and he said, um, have you guys ever looked up the definition of subsistence? And, you know, we looked at each other, we said, no. And he said, he read the definition to us and essentially, you know, sub means below. And um, what it means is to barely survive. It's, it, subsistence means to just barely be alive and just to barely make it. And he was very frustrated with the idea and said, we would never describe our culture or our people in that way, our way of life. He, we would never talk about it that way because it's not true. And he said, um, he asked if I would please help find a different word 
because he wanted, he was very frustrated with the fact that it was in all of the federal documentation, it was in all of the um, state documentation, and he just didn't want us using that word anymore. And I thought, well, that shouldn't be too difficult. I thought, I'll Google it. You know, I figured there might be some other tribe out there that probably already had um, had this conversation. So I, I looked at other tribal constitutions. I looked at uh, tribal ordinances and um, even contacted a few different tribes and I wasn't able to, to find anything. But I wasn't too concerned at that point because I just, I thought, well, I'll go to the experts, which are our elders, you know, they will know. And so I went to two of our traditional language speakers separately, um, Jeannie and Markle, who've both since passed on. And I asked them, how do we say subsistence in our language? And they both answered me, um, un unbeknownst to one another in the exact same way. And the answers sounded uh, very, it was very, it was very transactional. Um, so they just started saying things like when the berries are ripe and it's time to gather berries. And they would say it in our Atna language and then translate it for me in English. And then they said, uh, when the moose are here and it's time to get a moose. When the fish arrive and it's time for us to harvest salmon. Like it was real transactional. And I thought, you know, that wasn't, um, in the same spirit as what this elder was asking from the tribal council because you know they're sort of looking for a one word situation and i didn't think to continue questioning the elders because i knew that they gave me you know the information that i had asked for so i continued to struggle and and try to find a way to get an answer to this question and it was a few months later I had run into a dear, sweet friend of mine, uh, Bobby Andrews, who's since passed on. He uh, was a leader in fighting against Pebble Mine and, um, and a leader in his community in Dillingham. And so I, he and I had traveled together. We had a very close, friendly relationship. And I was relieved to see him when I got to the meeting. And I thought to myself, hey, he spoke Yupik. And I thought, hey, I wonder if they have a different way of saying it in their language. So I was excited. And I, I said, hey, hey, Bobby, Bobby. I said, how do you guys say subsistence in your language? And it was so funny because he said the exact same thing that our two elders said. It was very transactional. He said in his language, um, you know, in the springtime when the birds lay their eggs and it's time to gather the eggs. And then he translated to English for me. And then he said, when the fish arrive and it's time to harvest fish, you know, same thing, same thing. And I was like, getting a little bit desperate and I had a closer relationship with him. And so I said, oh no, that's not what I mean. And he laughed at me just like an elder would. And he said, what do you mean, Shauna? And I held out my hands because I couldn't think how to say it. I said, if my left hand represents the air, the water, the land, and the people, or I said, if my left hand represents the, the air, the water, the animals, and the land, and then I said, and my other hand represent the people, and then I clasped my hands together, I said, how do I say this word? And he said, 
Oh, 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 okay, okay. I understand what you're saying. And he said, there is no one word in our language to say what you're talking about. He said, because in order to fully understand what you're talking about, you have to feel. And in order to feel, we tell stories because stories have the ability to help you not only understand the definitions and the instructions, but also the feelings that were meant to go along with those actions. And he said that um, that was the only way to truly understand what our relationship and responsibility was with the land, the air, the water, and the animals. And so I like to share that story because um, it made me realize what my grandma was telling me, which is there really was no way to translate what they were talking about into English. And that actually English is a very primitive language that doesn't have the ability to add in the type of feelings that needed to be inserted for a lot of relationships and definitions. And so I think um, in the English language, it just ends up looking very um, beautiful or um, I don't know, like uh, flowery or aesthetically pleasing to think about or romanticizing. It's a very romantic idea to think about the relationship between, for example, people and animals, right? Like, oh, the Indians and, you know, they say they had a relationship with the animals. And, and I, I think I actually really had a hard time understanding that myself for a long time until I started this job about a year and a half ago. And I had a few instances happened back to back that really made me realize all of these things and what it meant when you put them together. The first thing was that um, I went to a hearing in Fairbanks and Kenneth Frank stood up and he told the story about how um, a man from their tribe became a caribou. And he's since released a published and released a book on it. Um, it's a story about how there was a young man in the village and he became a caribou and he had the opportunity to turn back to his human form, but instead he decided to stay a caribou. And he talked to the leadership within the community and the people and he said, I'm going to stay a caribou, but in return, I need the reciprocal relationship of respect between humans and caribou. And so you will know that it's your responsibility always to take care of the caribou and the caribou then in turn will always take care of you. And so that's the understanding and relationship that we have when we go out onto the land and we get meat. Like we understand that we protect them and we are have access to that, but it's under a, it's under an understanding as well as a sacrifice that was made thousands of years ago. And so I thought, oh, that's an, you know, oh, what a beautiful story, you know, how romantic. And then I was um, invited to come to my best friends. She's a playwright and a poet, author, 
authoress and uh, she had done a play called Whale Song, which was uh, showing here in Anchorage. And uh, she invited me as well as all of our friends. And we went and it was an amazing, beautiful story about how there was a whale chief that lived in the waters up north. And then there was the chief that lived on the land. And, and you know, the whale chief was in charge of all the whales and the human chief was in charge of the humans. And <clears throat> they had a special understanding that every few thousand years when the whale chief had a son and the human chief had a daughter that those two would marry and that would um, solidify the bond between the two species and that they had a very specific understanding about the fact that whales take care of the people as long as the people take care of the whales so it's a very similar story to the caribou story right and i thought huh interesting then I started thinking about my own tribe and our stories, because in our tribe in Chicklin Village, we have our own traditional tribal school called Yani Da'a. And what that means is school of the ancient stories. And that's how we learned. Every day, our parents would go out and do the chores and um, work on the land and do all the things that needed to be done. And then when they would um, come to the end of the day after dinner and everything was cleaned and put away, they would get a chance to sit down and listen to stories. And the stories that they shared were very similar to the two stories that I just mentioned about um, our values and um, how we treat each other, but also how we're in relationship with other beings. And so I thought, yeah, we have those stories. We have one uh, story in particular about the ant lady that's very similar. And then the last thing that happened was I was invited to visit the Ta'ana Atham uh, reservation in Tucson, out, just outside of Tucson, Arizona. And uh, we went, um, I was with my cousin from Chickaloon and my good friend, Amy Wan is Ta'ana Atham. And so she was leading us through this, um, through this tour and she took us to the sacred place where all life begins according to the Tana Atham and that's where their god who they call Etoy was and and brought the very first beings according to their stories their original instruction stories and it was funny because the man who lived there and took care of that place said this land is gonna impact you for the rest of your life. You might not know how today or tomorrow, but you are going to eventually come to understand how this is gonna impact you. And he's, he, he went on to tell the story about how Etoy brought the people there. And the instructions that he gave the people was, as long as you always take care of the land, the land will always take care of you. Same story as the caribou, same story as the whale, same stories we have. And those are, you know, the first three stories are from tribes in Alaska. And then the last story is from a tribe in the middle of the lower 48. And we all had basically the same story. So it made me 
come to the realization and understanding that we really did have a different relationship with the animals and with the trees and with the, with the land and the air and the water. And we really did value them as living beings and we were in relationship with them. And there is no way to articulate that in the English language without people being tricked into thinking about fairy tales. And these are not fairy tales, these are actual stories that have been passed down since they occurred. And so I would say that, you know, we could very easily fall back on, oh, you know, how we see the trauma and the inter intergenerational trauma is, you know, we lost our language and there's a lot of alcoholism and homelessness and high rates of suicide and a lot of drug abuse. And sure, we, we could easily fall to that and, you know, go straight to the statistics. But if you really want to know why, it's because slowly but surely colonization has eroded us away from our original instructions and our original instructions are what has kept us alive since the beginning of time and it's in our dna and it's in our blood and i can't tell you there's no college to go to to learn this information i just know it inside of my body and in my mind nobody taught me that i just know it and i'm always talking to other traditional indigenous people who know the same things that i know and we can't say how we know we just know since colonization came to alaska at least in part through the work of christian missionaries i wanted to know how churches and individuals are engaging that history <laughs> Uh, hi, my friends. Hi, all my relatives. My name is TJ, and I am Lakota. And culturally, traditionally, we were supposed to tell what clan we're from and all of that, but because of Doctrine of Discovery, because of Manifest Destiny, because of my great-grandfather's alcoholism, all that has been lost to me. Um, so, uh, 1922, my grandfather was moved from the reservation that they were on in Lakota land to uh, the Lummi Nation. Is the BIA decided to move us as far away as they could in the north. So that's how I, my family still is in Washington. That's how we ended up there. As you can hear from the audio, I interviewed TJ at a park. As we talked together, I asked him about the Indigenous Ministers Association of the Evangelical Covenant Church, which he's a part of. So in 2004, part of the Evangelical Covenant Church, ECC, um, there was an African-American Ministers Association, and that was the first of the four associations of uh, the denomination. And it really was to give a voice and perspective from now African-American, Alipe is um, the Latino uh, one, Kappa is the Asian one, and IMA is the last one to come. Although we've always been at the table uh, in 2004, um, the, IMA is it's now called the Indigenous Ministers Association was called the Alaska Ministers Association because the denomination uh, Swedish Covenant missionaries came here before the covenant actually became a denomination in 1885. So the history of the covenant in Alaska is huge um, and even a quick history. So the Presbyterians and the covenant and Lutherans we divided the state up intentionally so there wouldn't be um, churches that are competing in small villages for each other. So that is a piece of it. So 
Fast forward to uh, last November, um, I was appointed in, in that realm. We were not formalized as an association yet, so I had to go through the formalization process through annual executive ministers and annual meeting because of COVID. It didn't happen, but they still were able to formalize us. So now we have a voice at the table. So the four presidents of the four different associations, we are a sounding board from the denominational perspective on all sorts of different issues. So uh, uh, practicing solidarity was something that the, it's now called the Mosaic Commission, before that was the Ethnic Commission, but we intentionally changed the name in January to Mosaic Commission because we wanted to be all inclusive. Ethnic was only dividing us as ethnic people away versus being inclusive, because in a mosaic, every color is represented. So we intentionally changed the name to Mosaic Commission at that point. Um, and so the, the, we had five P's before, and the sixth P was practicing solidarity. So as a denomination and as a Mosaic Commission, as presidents, we've been really working on what does that mean? How do we live that out? Um, so our denomination is repudiating the doctrine of discovery. And part of that process is even though uh, doctrine of discovery affects every person of color, it, it just, it does. The African slaves um, in 1501 were taken because of Doctrine of Discovery. Um, Columbus quote-unquote discovered America. There was many indigenous people here in North America as there was in Europe at the time statistically, right? But he discovered a land that was full of us. Um, but in that process, um, 10 years later after Columbus came, the first native slaves were taken back to Europe. So. Doctrine of Discovery impacts everything. So we're doing repudiation of that. So even though it affects indigenous people for the most part because it was our land, but it also affects the African-Americans. It also affects Asian-Americans. The Chinese Expulsion Act in the 1800s was a great example. We're gonna take and use your labor to build railroads. Now we're gonna kick you out and expose you. And with the Latinos, we see that happening now, even in, in our day and age. TJ mentioned churches making statements or repudiations of the doctrine of discovery. The most well-known example of this in Alaska is the Presbyterian Church. I talked to someone who knew the history of this statement. So I am uh, Curtis Carnes, and I'm a pastor, but I'm also, my, my job is to serve as executive presbyter for the Presbytery of Yukon, which means that uh, I'm in the office that gives oversight to all the Pre Presbyterian churches in Alaska from Anchorage North. One of our churches on St. Lawrence Island, the, the Presbyterian Church in Gamble, uh, the, the leadership of that church said, you know, there's a barrier between our church, between the community, and it's left over because of, uh, uh, of some of the colonialism that had happened. Would, would the Presbytery be willing to enter into a, some kind of a reconciliation event uh, that, that the church would host between the community and, and the church? We said, of course. Um, what are you thinking? And they, they spent an entire year preparing the presbytery to understand what, because uh, what happens, of course, is people come in and out of churches. We don't even know our own history oftentimes. So they, they, there had to be some preparation, but also then working with their community saying, is this something the community would like to be a part of? So they, they spoke to the city council, to the tribal council, uh, the way that the, the St. Lawrence Island Yupiks, um, culturally work, they are in clans, so they went to each clan leader and uh, had to get permission from all the clan leaders before they, they could go forward. They said, yeah, we want to do that. So we went there in 2013 
And in 2013, then they, they hosted a major educational event. They brought Father Alexa, who is just wonderfully uh, admired across the state for his cross-cultural teaching ability. And he came and taught uh, some of the history. Uh, they had uh, Edna uh, Apatiki, who is uh, one of the, the uh, past mayors, but also one of the, the uh, leaders in that the community of Gamble. And she talked about what was it like to grow up uh, under uh, the legacy of some of the colonialism. And then we, we were there with a whole team of people from the Presbytery. We invited people also to, to, to be there from the National Church. So Clay Antioquia came from the, the, uh, the Presbyterian Mission Agency to, to be a part of it too. And so we listened and learned a great deal. And at the end then uh, offered a, a public apology for, uh, uh, one of the things that came out of it was that the missionaries were largely loved in St. Lawrence Island, that one particular community, they were just greatly loved, but there were some, some uh, uh, just misunderstandings that, that came along. People who intended good things stumbled. And so we used a, a scripture out of 2 Corinthians 4, where Paul speaks and says, you know, we have this treasure in clay jars. And so we said, you know, apologizing for our, uh, our own elders, um, you know, we need to honor our elders. Is an apology appropriate? And we said, yeah, it is appropriate because what they wanted to do is to reveal the treasure, which is Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to the degree that their own humanity got in the way of that, that was where they failed. And they, if, we, if we can clear the air, that helps them to be more successful. That really does honor our elders. So we offered a public apology for any of those areas where we had stumbled and uh, went into, into actually in a great detail and provided a, a actually a framed copy of the apology to each of the clan elders, to the city council, to the tribal council, to the leaders of that community. But out of that, then in 2016, the Presbyterian Church USA um, came to the conclusion um, and, and that, that they needed to join what was happening worldwide because the World Council of Churches had seen that colonialism was just a huge problem for, for European uh, communities and their relationship with non-European communities, that their colonialization had created huge problems and the church had played a role in that. And the church should take the lead at trying to clear the air on that when you just need to be upfront about it. So they asked all the churches to renounce any of the legacy of colonialism, to apologize for the way in which they'd been a part of it. So the Presbyterian Church USA and many other denominations in this country have, have done that very thing. And in 2016, the Presbyterian Church USA did that and said, we need, we need to find a way to address all of the Native Americans across the country. Well, in our own presbytery, we felt like, well, we'd already been started that in Gamble, but we needed it to go now to the rest of the communities, the, the villages and, and, and all of Alaska. And so the Utkiavik Presbyterian Church took the lead and said, our presbytery needs to take action right now. The national church is still trying to figure out how to do it but the, the AFN is gonna meet in October. We need to be at AFN and asked us to be there at AFN and make that apology. So we were actually the very first ones to, to, to move from the, the decision hall and said, yeah, we need to make an apology to actually do it in the PCUSA. We were the very first ones and did that in Fairbanks at, at the AFN in October. Um, but then um, they went on to say, but we, they, we need then for our, our national leaders to come and show up at Kiviak in Barrow in February of 2017, because thousands of people are gonna be gathered for Kiviak. And that this becomes an opportunity 
to speak directly to those folks. So our national leaders showed up and offered that apology. And uh, uh, what we did is we learned from the Gamble event. We spent uh, some months before that uh, Kivya, uh, meeting with tribal leaders, with community leaders, with church leaders in Utkalavik, planning that event, saying what, what would be helpful. And what they finally said was, we really do appreciate this apology, but that's, uh, 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 apology is really not an adequate Christian response when you know that you've sinned. You know, apology is not what, what the Bible calls for. The Bible calls for repentance. And repentance means to actually turn and walk a whole different path. You walk, you, you turn around and walk a whole different direction. And so what we, we said, what would repentance look like in this case? And they said, you know, what's really needed, what, what the church did well when they first came to Utkalavik and many other communities is they brought doctors and offered healing for the diseases that came along with Western culture, whether it was smallpox or diphtheria or whatever. And uh, what now we are seeing is the intergenerational legacy of the shock when uh, Western culture pretty much overran indigenous cultures, insisted that different things happen, especially the boarding schools. That's what we heard over and over again, taking our children off to boarding schools. There were a lot of good things that came from that, but boy, there were abuses that came out of that. And uh, there was a lot of denigration of uh, indigenous culture that was a part of that. And so they said, what's happened out of that is we're seeing the social ills in our community are so exacerbated because we have generation after generation of people who have been in pain. And we need uh, a spiritual approach to addressing these ills. And they said it has to be spiritual because spirituality is a big part of what it is to be in a Nupiak. And spirituality is one of the, the, the tribal values. And so all our efforts that we've done in the past that left out the spirituality have failed. So we need the spirituality to be brought into it. So they asked us to begin uh, designing and, and um, providing a, a spiritual approach to addressing the social ills. And that was clearly not strictly a Presbyterian task, but had to be a community-wide task. And so we did do that. We started an organization called Intergenerational Arctic Ministries and invited any church, any, any church that wants to be a part of it, you're in. So we have... Uh, I've forgotten the number. I think there's eight different denominations. If you count independence as a denomination, that's, you know, the independents are independent, but you, you know, we got Presbyterians and Seventh-day Adventists and Assemblies of God and uh, Church of God, and we got all these denominations and then, and then a bunch of independents. So it, it turns out to be about um, seven denominations and independents who are part of that, that movement. And we've begun trying to address that. And that, that's a, uh, of course, a lot I can say about that, but that, that's the history of what happened. I asked about what the outcomes have been from their apology. Well, the outcomes, um, what we found is uh, two things. One of them, when we gathered in Utkalavik for the apology itself, we made sure, we, we, we did our very best to make sure there were people from every church, the presbytery present, including the urban churches because urban folks often don't know much about uh, the, the intergenerational trauma that's happened to indigenous people. They're, they're just in some ways uh, uneducated about that. And so to be there and to listen to the stories and to have people from each church present was huge. And I, I had uh, several people comment that that was one of the most important spiritual experiences they had is going there and seeing uh, that 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 happened, but but what also can, comes out of that then is the question: What do you what? How, how do we 
respond in the villages and how do we respond in the urban areas? And we put more energy into the villages because quite honestly, uh, a couple of us that were leading it had only so much energy to give. So we decided that that was the burning issue that we had to start with was in the villages. But the churches then have begun doing Bible studies and begin asking the, those questions in the city. What are we doing here? And what we're learning from the city folks is they're saying, you know what, intergenerational trauma has its own unique history among indigenous people. But my gosh, this is a huge issue. The church needs to get on this worldwide. Urban people often have their own histories of intergenerational trauma, not related to indigenous people, just but just related to evil things that have happened in their own lives. And so they're saying that you're really, you know, the, 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 the village folks are leading the way and showing us where healing can come. And that, that's been one of the great outcomes. And so how do we respond to that in the urban areas? We have not organized in the same way just because we haven't had the energy to do it. But that becomes kind of the next step we see down the pike that we want to do is to begin doing more organizing to, to begin addressing intergenerational trauma in other arenas besides uh, the village setting among indigenous people. The statement made by the Presbyterian Church sparked conversation in lots of churches and organizations around Alaska. I asked one person what the conversation had been in their denomination. So my name is Curtis Ivanoff. My um, Inupak name is Yulak. I grew up in the village of Yulalakleet. And I am married to my wife, Christy. We have three children who are, two of them are adults. And um, yeah, I have... Being that I grew up in the village, I have a great appreciation for our Alaska Native communities, our culture, our way of living, and um, I'm very proud to have grown up and where I grew up. And yeah, love love our people, love our state, and um, yeah, yeah. I, currently, I serve as the superintendent for the Alaska Conference of Evangelical Covenant Church. So we have 19 churches throughout Alaska, 12 in Western Alaska, and um, uh, three ministries, a college down in Soldotna called Alaska Christian College, a radio station in Nome, and our youth ministry, which includes a Bible camp. First of all, you know, I'm, a, I'm a real student of history and believe that it's really important that we know our history, uh, that we look at our past. And, and it's from that that I think we can, it helps us to, to look forward and to, um, to look forward with, with hope and, and whatnot. So um, when, that, when they issued or read their apology at the Alaska Federation of Natives, uh, it really sparked in me, I think, a desire to have our church engage with that as it's a sister church, if you will that began doing its mission work in the same era as us. Uh, in 1887, a two Swedish missionaries came to Alaska from Sweden via the United States, lower 48. Um, and so, you know, I think each of our churches has a, has a unique history, uh, depending on, you know, the, the various backgrounds. But I, I like to think of it in terms of that we all serve the same one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So, when one church apologizes like that, it, it caught my attention, and I uh, really listened to it intently and, and actually reached out to Kurt and had began to have conversation with him, and then also began to have conversation with, with other leaders, other, other leaders within our church, but also um, people, Alaska, other Alaska Natives, 
in, in different fields, uh, just to talk and to listen, to learn. Um, and so um, that following spring at our annual meeting, um, I hosted a, a, um, a session where that was a discussion point. Uh, the, the Presbyterian apology was a springboard for, for us to have a, have a discussion, if you will, and to consider our history um, because it is different than the Presbyterian Church, but like I said, we we all have the same the same Lord, one faith, one baptism, and so um, yeah, so it it causes to yeah, it, it causes to to have to maybe take a look at our history um, and give consideration. So that was within our state within our state. Um, and then as a, as a whole, as a national church, you know, we are engaging with looking at um, and repudiating the doctrine of discovery, um, which has impacted, you know, it's impacted these lands and the peoples, the First Nations peoples, indigenous peoples, all throughout North America, historically. Um, that's, that's a broader, a broader picture conversation. But um, so uh, as a result of that conversation, yeah, nothing, nothing emerged, you know, nothing sparked in terms of, you know, thinking about an official apology, um, you know, so, so, you know, we, we didn't follow suit, if you will. Um, however, I, I, in that process, I also became aware of conversations that were had in the 1990s about this very thing um, in, in Bethel. And I, I, maybe I better not say exactly what happened because I'm, I'm fuzzy. At, at the moment, I can't recall, you know, what the nature of that, but I know it involved pastors from different churches, different denominations. So I think that's where it's important for us to do history and to do it well and for us to know our history, um, to be aware of these kinds of conversations. I had a professor tell me that, you know, apologies can be, somewhat problematic in that they may, they may be forgotten, you know? And so, um, so I think it's, I, I like to look at it as an ongoing work of Christ shining his light on the past of our history and how, what we need to know and continue to, I think, um, to keep doing our homework um, in the pursuit of reconciliation and peace, peace for people's lives, you know, that have had impacts of assimilation um, over over generations, which I believe still lingers, you know. So I'm not sure if that answers the question fully, but um, yeah. I, I think I will ask you the question that's the title of the the article that you wrote sort of in response, thinking about, thinking about those issues and just sort of, are apologies sort of necessary and are they, um, those types of statements, a good way of moving forward past sort of a history of assimilation or colonization? Yeah. Um, what's the role of those? Are, are they helpful or are they not helpful? Yeah, you know, I think there's a place for them. Um, really that something that emerged when we had these conversations and discussions was, you know, well, what about some sort of a confession, you know? where we can say, yes, um, we participate, we, we were um, a part of 
um, whatever the history is, you know, in this case, assimilation. Um, and so, so I think that, um, you know, and so we haven't, we haven't written anything formal like that. Um, and I think it's partly reflective of our collective, um, our collective voice in terms of saying, you know, yes, we, you know, this is something, this is something we need to do. Um, I think there's still a grappling that in, in some people's, um, I mean, you know, I mean, we have churches all throughout various parts of, of Western Alaska and the stories, you know, the stories vary, but um, I think there's still a grappling going on. And so back to your question, let me get, so I think that what can be helpful is when we recognize when we recognize where we fell short as a church, as ambassadors of Jesus, the good news, um, <clears throat> I think that can be a, something that removes barriers, you know, for people who look and see, well, man, it's plain, in plain sight, how the church, what the church did that was, um, wasn't the best of what God has for us to be a, as his, um, God's ambassadors um, of a good news. Um, and so I think that, that it can be, um, remove barriers. It can, I think it can be a, 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 um, a, a measure of us reckoning with history to where people can see, people can see when there's honest reflection, um, an in-depth reflection that's, you know, that I, I think, um, it can be helpful. Um, in talking with another church leader, you know, um, it's like, here's, here's this spectrum, or here's this path, if you will. I know it's linear, and we're, in our culture, we're not linear, but I'll go with this here. You know, it's like a path, and an apology is like step one of a journey that's, you know, and, and here's the first step, but the journey is like this long. And so I think what is, maybe what I would say is, is um, significant is what are the actions that follow an apology um, or a confession? You know, because we can we can say and, and things have been said in the past, and I think you know, like I said earlier, but what kinds of actions follow where we learn from history, where we learn from mistakes? You know, like a hundred years from now. You know, there's going to be someone, um, I don't know, what the, you know, it won't be a, a Zoom call, you know, but, but they'll be talking about our, what we, what we did. And they, they can look back and say, whoa, boy, what were they thinking? You know, um, so I, want, I think it's important for us to be humble when we look back and, and look at our, our past. Um, but I think it can help us in, in our witness. Um, it can help in the healing journey of people where there is pain still felt from historical trauma. Um, but our, our actions and what we do today, I think, are, are what's important. I think that's a really big question, you know. That's not necessarily real easy to answer um, in some senses. And, and also, it, it can be challenging, too, with, with the variations of... Um, the varying thoughts among people about what what is appropriate what is the response what are the actions that are reconciliatory in nature that help to bring about shalom um 
I think those are the kind of things that, you know, um, and so I could, I could give an example of, of what I, you know, I think about when I, when I'm thinking of, when I'm talking about this, if that's, if that's good. Yeah, absolutely. That'd be great. Yeah. You know, so I think about the way language was um, changed among other things. Well, I'll zero in on that one. Um, you know, I've, I've heard lots of stories and I'm trying to find out, okay, what's, what are the stories that involve the church and don't, don't involve the church? Um, you know, uh, because I think a lot of times um, missionaries, there's a narrative that, that I think is, there's, you know, the missionaries, it's all about, all about missionaries. So I'm, I really want to know what was the parts. And so I, I, I do know that missionaries of Jesus did say things and write things that were, um, that reflected, that did not reflect well and honor that the image of God is born all people. Um, and so, um, and so the, the language, you know, we can, we can read those, we can read those kinds of writings and, and it makes my, it breaks my heart. It's painful to read those kind of things. And in my thinking, it's easy to point to that and say, yeah, boy, that was, that fell far short of how God made us all to bear God's image. And because of that, there's dignity, there's beauty, there's strength uh, that comes from that, that, that we, we owe one another, you know, we, we owe one another to treat one another with a God-given dignity because of the way we bear the Imago Dei. So language was, was a significant part of that and, you know, changing it to English or prior to that, Russian, uh, when, when Orthodox missionaries came. Um, so I, I feel like, you know, that at a personal level, I feel like it's good to participate. Like, so for me, um, I don't know my language, Inupiaq. Um, or I may have some Yupik blood in me, you know, I don't know Yupik. I, I try to learn. I took Inupiaq last semester from Ili Salavik College in, in Kavik, Barrow. Um, and so I feel like language, the process of language, either reacquisition or, um, you know, restoration, um, our languages are dying. And it varies throughout the state. Throughout, you know, we have, we have many different languages. And so the story is going to be different. You know, in the southwest Alaska, where there were Moravian missionaries who, you know, learned Yupik and spoke in Yupik, preached in Yupik. Now, I think that has a piece of why that's, the language remains strong. Whereas when you go to other places in Inupiaq communities or other communities, the language is, is less strong. And again, it varies depending on where you go in the state. Um, you know, because of the assimilation efforts of the government for which the church participated in some ways, um, to what extent, that's, that's where we need to do good history and not just make these broad generalizations that I don't feel is productive or helpful. Um, but we need to, we need to be aware. So I feel like, man, we did participate as a church, broadly speaking, in, um, in changing the languages and, and, you know, fast forward to, to today and the languages are dying and to say, you know, we're going to invest and participate in the, the restoration or the, whatever, whatever re- you know, word is best fitting um, to honor our people, 
and 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 in a sense re re-indigenize. Um, you know, I hear a lot of the the word decolonization. Um, I, I like to think about re-indigenization um, uh, because that that puts forward a a future, and and so so you know so. I think that's where then in the, within the church, someone would ask, well, what does that have to do with the gospel? Well, I would ask, what did teaching English have to do with the gospel 120 some years ago? You know, honestly, you could ask, I think that would, that would be the question I would ask to anyone who says that, well, what does teaching Inupak have to do with the gospel? Well, we can say that it's a part of affirming the God-given dignity of Inupak people. That has that has a, that um, should have the same dignity as anybody else, you know. And whether it's and and then you could you could talk about the way that our within our peoples, you know, that we we war, we battle, we fought, and we're at odds with um, with interior native peoples, um, Denina and you know such. Um, we need to look at that history too, you know. There, that's within a context of um, of uh, uh, the American wave of colonization, if you will, assimilation. But we also have had issues historically among each other, and we we need to consider that as well. I think. But going back to the the, to me that's one example. So when I would go to our Bible camp and I, I preached there, or spoke there at our Bible camp um, in in you know, up the river there, um, a few years ago, I. I like I said, I don't know my language, but an, a Yupik teacher said one way you can you can help the one thing that will be helpful is to learn songs, learn translated hymns, and such. Ever since then, I've I've endeavored to do that. Um, and so at Bible camp, I thought, you know what? Let's learn a translated Inupak hymn. You know, it's it's not a it's not a traditional dance. It's not. It wasn't something something that someone wrote. From a, it's a translation, but you know what? It's an exercise. I, I followed the advice of a Yupik teacher, you know. So we learned it at Bible camp, and it was so good, you know. Um, and and that was the context of that place. Is a lot of kids who don't know the language, and and every elder that dies, you know, we just we lose another. Um, I've heard someone say we lose another book in our library, you know, because of the way that our elders possess knowledge of history, of language, of our culture, you know? So I thought, hey, this would be a good way to, one little way that we can re-indigenize, if you will, and, and man, to recognize, man, our language is beautiful, and it can, it can help us do theology in ways that um, will capture things about God's nature that, other languages can't, you know, um, and so that so language, you know, if I focus on that piece, and and again, I recognize all throughout the state, the stories are a little different, you know, but the same assimilation thread, where our languages are dying. I remember when I came to Alaska in two thousand eight, from when I uh, Laura Forty, I was going to seminary. A headline in the Anchorage Daily News. Um, last living EAC speaker dies. And, you know, that was in 2008. I think it was March. Man, that grabbed my attention, you know, and broke my heart. And it just, 
you know, I, I love, I appreciate language and, I, and to, I've had this longing and hunger to learn our language. And I know many others do, and I, I deeply appreciate those who are teaching it at the university level, like at Elise Sadovic um, and other, other places. Um, I admire, and in some ways I'm kind of envious of those Yupik communities where the language is, is alive. But I've even heard from my Yupik friends how that's changing slowly with the further, you know, the more and more we participate in American society, Western society, where we all have smartphones, we all talk about, you know, oh man, you know, our data plans and, you know, that kind of thing. So anyway, maybe I better stop right there and, and um, see if you have any, well, yeah, just that's, that's, that's one thing in my mind when I think about re-indigenizing and, and, um, you know, almost as a corrective where we, um, where we could say with gospel, because of the gospel, because of um, the work, uh, the way God made us, that yes, your language, it's beautiful, you're beautiful, and your culture is beautiful. And 120 some years ago, think people were saying things, missionaries were, were writing things, saying things, teaching things that, that didn't reflect that. Um, and that's sad. It breaks my heart. And I'm, and I think that's good for us to, to, to name it, you know? Um, so for our church, you know, um, that's where it's like, okay, what, I've, I have been intentional over the last two years or so in asking elders, you know, about their growing up experiences and their school experiences. One shared with me a story of how when they were in school, if they spoke in Yupik, they had a dunce hat put on them and they had to stand in the corner of the, of the school room and broke my heart. And, um, and that the, her comments to that was just, was heartbreaking where it's like, you know, that was an awful way to live, to think that your language and part of who you were was, was less than, less than English, less than, Amer you know. And um, so I, I've, I asked her, so were those missionaries? No. Um, and, I've, and I've asked, and that's not to try to um, get missionaries off the hook. It's to, to I want to know, um, you know, to have a good, a good understanding of history and honest. And, um, and, and so pretty much um, I largely hear a lot that it's primarily the missionaries. Um, but, I've, you know, talking to five different elders, not a single one of their teachers was a missionary who was slapping their hands, who was putting dunce hats on them, you know. So I think we need to, we need to do our history well, uh, both in that regard and as the church to say, yep, we did have missionaries who, there were missionaries. So I'm starting to repeat myself, so I better stop. <laughs> I asked some of my guests about how we could start the process of decolonization. Sure. Um, what we like to say are um, there are a lot of different things that you can do and ways to decolonize, but sort of the um, plastic bag of, of decolonization or the, the straw 
of the of decolonization kind of the the easiest uh smallest thing you can start to do is um, by acknowledging whose lands that you're on and we always say that we recognize we're on unceded territory and talk about how you know when we were never conquered in alaska we were never conquered by russia um, there were wars and and the russians did lose they fought the atna athabascan they they fought my people and they fought clinket people and they lost um and so they were only really able to set up trading posts and in a few different places they had i believe three different trading posts and the trading posts are what they sold to the united states and the united states then took it as they stole the sold the entire state and took it on as that and so we know that just through our own history, our oral history, our my elders, that story's been passed on. I didn't learn that in school. I, I learned that from our chief. You know, he talked to me about that and said, this is it. And, and so um, land acknowledgements are very important to recognize whose lands you're on. And it's something that doesn't happen very often in Alaska. And so you will see it on, for example, the tagline on the bottom of my email, my signature line, you will find it on the back of my uh, business cards. Um, and wherever we go, we always acknowledge the, the land that we're on. And so that's one thing that can be done. Um, the other things that can be done, you know, I think has to start within yourself and and first you know those steps look like trying to decolonize your mind and and your body and and that for us was ceremony we went to traditional ceremonies where we would um, spend a long time meditating um and i i think also somehow that was sort of adapted through what what we call now banya which is like a sauna um, where we would spend long periods of time um, in council with family or friends or praying and you know just being in the hot steam and cleaning cleansing the idea of cleansing our minds and our bodies uh, it's very similar to the lower 48 practice of sweat lodge and and going in for prayer and and so um Dr. I believe it is Michael Yellowbird has done a lot of research and uh, he's a, a, a neuroscientist and has found by hooking up electrodes on people's brains that um, meditation um, is a way that you can help to start healing your neural pathways and um, bringing in uh, the ability to reduce your stress by breathing and, and those kinds of things. And he is able to link it directly to our traditional original practices of the ceremonies that we held. So just by breathing, um, you know, hearing the, the drumbeat, um, being in the sweat lodge and pray, praying and um, even you know, being in the meditative state while, for example, running. So um, being able to kind of quiet your mind and come back to center. And so um, I would say that trying to figure out, I think now the 
a cool hip word is mindfulness, but it's really just what we have always known and what we have always done as indigenous people. And so I would say um, those are some of the things, you know, some places to start, but then you have to start looking at, you know, daily practices, your family, and then your community and your workspace and, you know, your, your town, your, your, your neighborhood, you know, what does that institutional colonialism look like and, and how do you start, you know, pulling, um, that apart? You know, we, we understand what it looks like. We know that, for example, putting, um, people who are suffering from mental health issues into jail are not going to help their mental health issues go away. And then releasing them, they still have the mental health issues and then they end up back in jail. And so this is a very colonial institutional way of, of practicing. And then starting to think, how could we change that? What could we do different? You know, how could we not put them in jail, but actually get them the help that they need so they can truly heal. So just looking at it in those ways, I guess, are, um, like I said, you know, you can get a whole PhD on this subject, um, but those are just some of the ways that we talk about um, to, to be able to move forward. In the cases of um, churches and denominations that have made sort of um, apology for doctrine of discovery or those practices. Is that something that, that you find helpful in the, in the, in the process of decolonizing? Is that something that's important for, to be done? I think so. And Mark Charles actually addresses it in his Ted talk um, about um, truth and reconciliation. He says, you know, we've seen that, um, happen in Africa. We've seen that happen in Canada where they moved across the entire nation and the, um, the churches gave apologies and listened and just listened to all of the testimony from the abuse that happened over all those years and how those people were continuing to carry that with them. But the thing that, that Mark Charles says is in the United States, it wouldn't be truth and reconciliation. It would have to be truth and conciliation because there has never been any acknowledgement of formal acknowledgement of that. And so I would say, yes, it's an important part of what needs to happen. Um, but also given today's political atmosphere and where we're at, it feels so far away. Well, I think, you know, in some ways we're on that road in that um, there is increasing recognition that this is a denial of place. I'm getting almost weekly, you know, uh, requests to do land acknowledgements and, and signage and, and those, and that's kind of the first step. But I think if I had a, you know, if I could grant one wish, if I had the genie, so to speak, I think it would be, I think it, it's imperative that 
Alaskan residents who live here and call this place home have a duty to understand the history of this place and how they can both learn from it and also uh, make it a better place. So, and that applies, you know, not just here, but I would argue anywhere in the United States. Um, the point being that these weren't empty cultural landscapes or they didn't move into these empty vacuums. It's not like we went and colonized Mars where there was never any life um, that you can do, you know, shape it to your, your, your perception of what, what should be. No, there are uh, indigenous people that have either lived there or in the lower 48 forcibly removed from those places. Um, understanding, you know, the, the either rights or lack of rights that were granted to um, Native people and trying to um, make this place a better place. I mean, this, this whole fight about the Captain Cook statue is, is, um, is both, I, I mean, it's enlightening and it's also frustrating because it's hard to have a dialogue when you spend three quarters of your time trying to educate people to get to the level to even begin the dialogue. And so, and I'm not, I'm not blaming individuals, but I do believe that our state has a responsibility and our education system has a huge responsibility to actively and accurately portray the complexities of this place and all the people not just the indigenous people or Euro-Americans, but others that have come here uh, to create a better life. Um, but never forget that this is our homeland and as proud as you can be about, you know, being uh, from somewhere else and being an immigrant, it's also important to remember that there is a homeland for you to, to go back to if you would like. We don't have that choice. So um, there does need to be a special care in celebrating the, um, the people, the indigenous people, and, um, and recognizing the contributions and what makes this place special, unique, and thinking about the future, I mean, with, you know, climate change, there's a belief that, you know, we may get, you know, within a few generations, uh, all these climate refugees from around the world. And I mean, the one thing you have to have for life is access to, you know, clean water. And that's something, even if all the glaciers melt, that's something we're still going to have plenty of. And so what's, you know, it might not be fights over oil. It could be fights over water. And if you don't believe me, go to the Southwest and, and look around and, and see what's happening. And, uh, and water rights are a huge issue. So that's kind of what I'm thinking about. This is my opinion. Yeah. So for 528 years, Doctrine of Discovery, the Manifest Destiny, has shaped and molded our country to be what it is. So we have to remember, 
I encourage people to remember that what has happened over 528 years isn't going to happen in a heartbeat. And I always use the example, would you rather go to Lucky Wishbone and wait 20 minutes for a good burger or drive through McDonald's? So that wait is worth it, but it's hard when you're hungry. Um, versus go through McDonald's and then it goes through you and you have all sorts of other issues going on. Um, but just that imagery of one, we need to wait. Two, will we be who we're created to be? So in my journey, um, and I haven't picked it up in about a year, but I literally have written nine chapters, 60 or 80 pages of what if we were to be who God created us to be? And I don't care who you are. I don't care your culture, uh, your identity, because I feel a lot for our Western European friends that they don't even know who they are. They have no idea who their culture is. I, I don't relate to anybody because we have, we've lost it. We've become this, you know, you hear the phrase melting pot. Well, in the melting pot, you still have all these flavors. Will you figure out the flavor that you, the creators created you to be? So that's the biggest encouragement I have for people. Will you figure out who you are? Um, if you're German, will you go back and learn your language? Because I have a covenant pastor who's German in culture. And uh, said so that's why you think the way you do. You think very minute detail, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, anything's out of place. That's how you think because that's your culture. That's who you are. Um, as an indigenous person, I think of community over the individual. It's always about community. It's never about the individual. That's culturally what we're given, that created to be. So knowing who you are, then for me, I believe, then you can start to look at other people and go, oh, that's who you are because I know who I am. I feel like for a lot of people, because I don't know who I am, you can't figure out who you are. So we push each other down versus lifting each other up. But if we know who we are, um, that creates an opportunity to allow other people to be who they're created to be. And so for me, that's a really, really important thing. began this podcast in episode one talking about curiosity. And what if curiosity is a way for us to begin to decolonize? What if we were curious about the land that we're living on? What if we were curious about our own story and who we've been created to be? What if we were curious about the story of those that we share the city with? What if all of that curiosity would move us beyond a single story and help us to reestablish our collective humanity. But with all the strength I gather And with all those lessons learned With the crazy long life that I lived already And the scars I earned I still can't see some of our guests shared a spiritual practice or a mindfulness practice that helps keep them centered in the work that they're doing. Here's what they had to say. I personally learned about spirituality through um, my uh, husband of, of 29 years and his mother 
Um, his mother was very involved with the American Indian Movement, and she serves as the executive director of the International Indian Treaty Council. Um, she's from the Bay Area originally, and she is the person that hosts the um, the uh, sunrise ceremony on Alcatraz Island each Thanksgiving. And so um, I really learned about the sweat lodge, and I learned about um, mostly Lakota ways, uh, even though they're not Lakota, that's where they, they sun dance in that way. And so I learned those ways through my family and started practicing those ways because I realized that I believed that much more than I believed what the man in the robes at the front of the church was saying to me. And that everything that we did in a sweat lodge made so much more sense as crying and processing and healing and cleansing. And then, you know, for the women, as we come out, we're being, it's being, you're being rebirthed into the world. So for me, um, the guy who wrote uh, Band of Brothers, I'm gonna screw up his name, so I'm like, Stephen Arterburn, I think. Um, he wrote a historical novel on the comparison of Crazy Horse and Custer. And at the end of chapter seven, and I haven't picked up the book since, because I believe Wakantaka, the creator, gave me the words I needed. He said, Custer had a state of mind of becoming. Crazy Horse had a state of mind of being. So as you read, well, as I read through the first seven chapters, um, Crazy Horse, before he did anything, he went in what we would call in the Christian world contemplative prayer. He would call a vision quest. He sat and was with Wakantaka, the creator, to figure out what to do and where to go. And that's what I start my morning off every morning with, is I spent anywhere from a half hour to two hours, maybe three, um, in the summer because I love to fish. I love my sanctuary, my cathedral is the Russian River area. Uh, I was there yesterday after church um, with a young um, Athabascan. Um, and we just sit and mesmerized, right? So I take uh, once a week um, and I spend eight to 10 hours just listening to podcasts a lot of times i have no music on no nothing on in the in the truck driving down just spending time no earphones just listening so a lot of contemplative listening for me um uh, meditative prayer so that is a huge spiritual practice that i do um sometimes lecti divina it was definitely one of those things that i do do um uh, but a lot of contemplative just just being with the creator I, I used to go on retreat once a year to uh, a retreat center in California and they, and they used to Zay music for their worship. And so I just fell in love with it. So I, I have these to music uh, recordings and I put my little earbuds in and I turn on the to music and I just spend time reading in scripture and in prayer. And it's interesting, no matter, and in my job, I travel all across the states. I'm in a different place all the time, except during COVID. <laughs> but normally I'm on the go. And so, but once that music hits my ears, I'm in my worship space, no matter where I am. And, and that becomes a routine. And then I, I spend time reading the scripture and in prayer. So that's one thing that I do. The second thing is uh, there's a Wednesday uh, online Bible study group that becomes my small group. I, as a, an executive, I'm not a part of any one church. I serve 21 churches. And one of the downsides of that is I have no group that I'm really close to. You know, I, I spend 
uh, a few days with this group, then a few days with that group. But this Wednesday online group becomes my group. There has to be someone that is my connection place, that my relationships that matter in my in my sustainable sustainable life. And I find that that Wednesday group is my group. Well, um, one thing that I just deeply um, appreciate is is our, you know, culturally our connection to the land, and I, I think that that's a place getting out in the creation, and and participating in the um, receiving of gifts from creation from our Creator, whether it's berries or fish or moose. Um, but that's a place that's very um, soul filling. And when we think about, um, yeah, God's gift and, and, our, and our part in being stewards of creation, um, I find a lot of either restoration, um, goodness, a lot of goodness. It's a place to pray. And, and I know that it's, I'm, I'm careful because, you know, that's that's a place um and it helps me to um know that, um you know we're connected to community in, in the in the body of christ so it's not just me and god you know i want to make sure that that's that's really clear but the gift of um in the way that god has shown us through scripture the significance of creation and our relationship to it and how jesus has come to to um for for all you know for for us but one day all things will be made new, including creation. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth we read in Revelations, right? So, so that's a, I don't know if you call it practice, um, but, um, but the, man, a lot of prayer. Um, and, and even, I will say, the practice of our, that we have within our culture of the way that we receive from the land, from creation, um, is, is really significant for me and I, I appreciate it and, I, and really the more and more I go along in life uh, i.e the older I get uh, the the more the the deeper that that place becomes you know and the the appreciation for the seasons and, and the way we see God in in creation the way he God reveals God through creation uh, is beautiful there was you know one of our one of the church forefathers said god has two books there's scripture and there's creation and i i you know the heavens declare the glory of god so um so that's that's a that's one one place and 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 out there then meditating on scripture you know god's given me a really wonderful revelation out in out in as i have meditated on scripture as i've been picking berries um one example you know i just Fills my soul. This week's episode was overflowing with good stuff. We've added a bonus audio track this week, and we invite you to check it out.
The Anchored City Podcast is grateful for a grant from Resonate Global Mission that in part makes this podcast possible. We are also grateful for our partnership with Street Psalms. Check them out at streetpsalms.org. And we're grateful for you, our listeners. If you are grateful for what you are hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and recommend us to your friends. Resources used to make this episode can be found in the show details. The Anchored City Podcast is hosted by Joel Kiekenfeld and is a production of the Anchorage Urban Training Collaborative. The mission of the collaborative is to train the head, heart, and hands of urban leaders to love their city and seek its peace. When we say peace, we mean the desire to see a world where all things are the way they are supposed to be for all people. Find us online at anchorageutc.org and on social media at Anchorage UTC. Our theme song is by Anchorage's own Monica Lettner.